News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Another day, another unfortunate record set in the United States as the daily case count for COVID-19 hit 60,000. Some states, like Texas, have hit records four days in a row. To talk more about the situation down there, we're joined now by Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So the news does not get any better. What is happening with the state governments in those particular states? Well, look, states that are seeing uh, this kind of exponential increase in case numbers are under increasing pressure, both from Republicans uh, and the president to kind of continue the course and do what they're doing, but also from local mayors uh, who may be on an opposite party who are looking to try and control the spread of this virus. You kind of have a clash realities in the states like Florida, where there is no kind of uh, statewide mandate for any kind of protection. So you have places like Miami-Dade implementing their own measures to try and shut businesses down and put mask mandates in place. It really is a patchwork system across the country. And that's part of why we're seeing the numbers skyrocket across uh, really from coast to coast. It's it's this weird disconnect, right? This this what you hear from, say, the federal government in the United States versus what you are seeing and reading about and what's happening in the actual states. Yeah, look, the president continues to push uh, this mantra and messaging uh, that this strategy is working well, that the country is doing well. But then you have, uh, you know, the complete opposite messaging coming from his own task force with Dr. Fauci saying, you know, quote, as a country, when you compare us to other countries, I don't think you can say we're doing great. I mean, we're just not. This is that kind of clash of messaging and realities uh, that really is creating this confusing situation and is really kind of escalating the tensions that we're seeing now in certain states uh, as as uh, as some governors and some officials really try to get things under control, but there's that pushback from mm-hmm. residents who just want to get back to where they were. And what's the deal with Dr. Fauci? Because all of a sudden I'm, I'm seeing him and hearing him in interviews and on podcasts and things like that, where all of a sudden he's around again. Well, he's around again, but he's not in any kind of official capacity when it comes to the White House Coronavirus Task Force. He was kind of pushed off a couple of days ago when there was a meeting at the Department of Education, uh, and he was left back at the White House to watch it remotely because oftentimes he's kind of sidestepping and overthrowing what the president and what that task force messaging is. Uh, the White House isn't giving him the clear to go on the Sunday talk shows, so he's kind of left on his own to kind of uh, do one-on-one interviews because that really is the only way the message can get out there and kind of put a stop to you know what is realistically oftentimes lies and and uh, factual inaccuracies coming from the president right and so the problem is it sounds like reggie that it got politicized so early on that now it's kind of ingrained in people well, yeah, I mean, look, considering you had all of these Republican states early on uh, shut down incredibly late and then be some of the first ones to start reopening, and that's where you're seeing some of the biggest increases right now, they were towing the president and the Republican Party's line of ensuring that the country doesn't stay shut down forever. Remember, the president always said that the cure can't be worse than the cause, and that's why we're seeing such a market increase now. Florida is about to run out of hospitals, uh, uh, hospital beds, rather, for ICU patients uh, at more than 41 locations. This is a situation that's playing out in Texas and in Arizona. Uh, and this is only going to get worse as these massive spikes continue. And we know that death and hospitalization are lagging indicators. And what's the deal in California? 
Well, look, California was one of the places that put those strict measures in place yeah. first. They were slow to roll out. Uh, but because you're seeing this increased influx of people, whether it's in public spaces or whether it's in restaurants, uh, their numbers are starting to go up. They're running out of hospital space uh, and they're seeing uh, about a 600 to 800% increase in cases from where they were just a few months ago. And this is what is concerning. At one point, this was an isolated uh, kind of uh, glob of uh, infections that were taking place in the Northeast. It has now spread from coast to coast meaning that everyone is now going to be at risk at a much faster rate. So states that we thought had a handle on things, like even just south of us in Washington state, for a while they seem to be getting better. And now it seems like, is there any state that does have a handle on this thing? There are a couple of states in the Northeast, including Rhode Island, but these are small states with small populations. And what we've been hearing from someone like Dr. Fauci is the, the, the virus is being seeded in other states because there are no domestic travel restrictions. People can travel freely across state lines, and what they're doing is bringing the infection with them. Uh, mm. And that's what's causing numbers to increase, which is why uh, someone like Dr. Fauci says the entire country is at risk when one state starts to open up and move around. All right, Reggie, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. If you take a look at the New York Times this morning, they've got this little chart that tells you which states have the fastest rising number of cases right now for today. It looks like West Virginia, Idaho, uh, Florida, Tennessee, North Dakota, and Montana, all very high up on that list. And I'm sure there's more to One thing that has really gone through quite a drastic change during this pandemic is liquor laws in this province. It was amazing to watch how quickly everything just seemed to fall away. All of the concerns that we used to have about, oh, too much liquor delivery or too much, you know, too much of accessibility to alcohol uh, is now just a done deal. And as I've told Attorney General David Eby when he's been on the show before, it's going to be awfully hard to roll that back. After all is said and done. Now, the, one of the other things that we've watched very carefully is the health of the restaurant and nightclub industry in this province. And not just here, actually. You could say all over North America, that is an industry that has really been the, the central kind of point of the pandemic where most of the job losses have occurred. So we've been hearing about efforts to help that, right? Efforts to help these businesses, uh, you know, get back and get healthy. For instance, things like drinking, public drinking in parks, the ability for bars and restaurants to buy alcohol at wholesale prices, all of that has been, you know, talked about a lot in the last few weeks. Well, now the Hospitality Vancouver Association says it is encouraged that the city of Vancouver has agreed to look at something called capacity regulations. And these regulations go back to the 1990s. It is something that they have been trying to get changed for a long time. And they're hopeful that that is about to happen. Council voted unanimously to realign the city's occupancy limits to the rest of the province uh, to go along with the BC building code. Now that may not seem like much to you, but it is significant to the hospitality industry. Our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke about this to Vince Marino, who is co-owner of the Pump Jack and the Junction on Davie Street. The Hospitality Vancouver Association said that they welcome a decision by Vancouver City Council to revisit a number of old policies that have, as they say, unfairly penalized liquor primary establishments. So Vince, what kind of rules is that statement referring to? Well, most of that, those rules are uh, uh, due to capacity uh, and moratorium. The kind of the really two keys uh, back in sort of mid late ni- uh, 1990s, um, the councils of that time decided that uh, they want to 
kind of restrict some of the uh, amount of uh, spillage and, you know, uh, people uh, coming out of the bars late at night. Um, it was That was the way it was at the time, and one way to do it was under the process of uh, capacities and, and how to calculate them. And so the city of Vancouver had the ability to um, do their own calculations versus uh, the provincial regulations. So that was one way to do it. And then they also wanted to do some studies and put some certain areas that were having a number of issues. Uh, um, uh, and so they put moratoriums on such as the east side and, you know, also on Granville Street. Um, we always thought those moratoriums were supposed to be kind of a, a slowdown uh, and do a study, figure out what's going on and, and that. But it looks like, you know, it's been over 20 odd years, 20, 25 years, and they're still there. Really, the industry has changed. The, so socially, it's changed. Dynamics have changed on, on the downtown uh, area. So um, this was a really good motion to uh, a good time to change that process. Okay, so generally we're talking about rules around increasing capacity. You'd be able to increase capacity if these rules change. Uh, well, it's not quite that clean and clear in the process. What All this is basically on the one side is uh, for increasing capacities. You, we still have to go through all of the liquor uh, uh, licenses, and, and it really doesn't matter whether it's uh, liquor primary or, or whatever you um, may come forward. Just look at capacity. What you still have to go. There's distancing, even in the provincial regulations. There's exiting distances. There is health situ- regulations, such as number of washrooms. So there's still a lot of little hurdles to go through the process. What this actually does is gives us the ability for each licensee to look at their uh, situation and say, you know, I think I can make this. I, I can actually be able to increase my capacity and go through the whole process of figuring out what exactly that capacity change may be. So it's not a given. It's not something that immediately, you know, once this bylaw comes into effect, uh, uh, suddenly everybody is going to be able to increase. Uh, That is not going to happen. What's going to happen is in a number of cases, they're not going to be able to increase their washroom capacities or depending on how they're located, what floor or where, they may not be able to, you know, change their uh, um, exit uh, widths and or distances or increase the size of their exit. So it's not that clear that that's everybody's going to get it. And we never thought when we were going through this from day one that everybody would be able to uh, simply apply and all of a sudden, you know, a thousand, two thousand seats would suddenly hit the market without going through the regular process. Right. Well, I have to say, I like that City Council is reviewing a lot of seemingly outdated liquor laws, which they have been doing a lot of lately. I imagine you'd love to see these types of rules revisited for a 21st century context. Well, that would be uh, our hope, absolutely, right uh, from uh, the uh, start. I I think that the sophistication of the uh, Vancouver and British Columbia uh, patrons are is, is changed dramatically, and and that, and hopefully, you know, those kind of rules will change and will come up to the 21st century very soon. Hopefully, that is Vince Marino. He is the co-owner of the Pump Jack and the Junction on Davy Street. Speaking with our Nikki Wright.
A lot of discussion in the last week or so about the number of COVID-19 cases that we've seen at Vancouver strip clubs, number five, Orange and Brandy's, and wondering whether, listen, there should be a crackdown on those types of businesses. But is that fair, especially when other businesses are also reporting cases like that employee at the McDonald's in Cloverdale? Well, Danica Darling is an exotic dancer, a sex work advocate and host of the podcast 50 Plus a Tip. She spoke to our Nikki Reitmeyer. Danica, I'll admit to you, I've pondered this question out loud, even on the radio, you know, with two stories now of COVID-19 at exotic dance bars. Are these establishments based on the nature of the business, which implies some intimacy with the customers, able to safely reopen right now? Yeah, so from what I've been told and what I've watched and my friendship with the people at the five and the managers and that they've followed the VCH guidelines as, as best as they possibly could. And they've had multiple meetings with coastal health and they're doing literally everything they've been told to do. You know, they schedule when they come in, they have a strict limited capacity and limited amount of girls working now. Um, they have plexiglass around the stage, uh, masks available. And to be honest, like they are more strict in the strip clubs I've been to than they are at the restaurants or the nail salons or anything else that I've that I've uh, witnessed, you know, where they're not screening people, they're not, you know, scanning people in, like, it's voluntary if you want to offer your phone number or name in restaurants and things like that, right? Much more, like, lax than, than the strip club is. Yeah, and as far as the dancers go, have you noticed girls saying that they're taking any extra precautions to protect themselves personally, their own safety? Yeah, so the funny thing is, is, like, dancers are, like, before even any of this happened, dancers are pretty adamant about their health. You know, we're always baby wiping, sanitizing. A lot of women will take their money home and put it in like alcohol before they like count it. They wash their hands before and after. Like it's funny because I think out of anyone I've met in the world, dancers are the most on top of their health and safety before a pandemic even happens. So to us, it's kind of like, yeah, we already know these things. Like we're already doing them. But and that's, you know, an umbrella over the women that I know. There's always outliers. But yeah, same, like, disrespecting the plexiglass, respecting um, our safety even when we're not in the club and our personal lives, you know, not shaking hands, wearing masks, um, etc. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Is it fair to say, then, that pre-existing bias against dancers or sex industry workers is leading to some potentially misguided criticisms of the reopenings of these types of clubs? Oh, for sure, right? Like, there's Many, obviously, negative stigmas about dancers that are vastly untrue, especially when you're speaking about off-street sex work. Uh, so women in clubs and stuff, Not you're not talking about downtown Eastside, which is obviously a different story. Um, but for off-street sex workers, there's a lot of stigmas that, you know, um, uneducated, um, for lack of a better term, they're dirty or not clean, um, you know, drug use, alcoholism, all that stuff, right? And again, like even like with sexual health, you always hear, you know, um, you better get tested if you slept with a stripper or things like that, which is funny because women in the sex industry, again, I only speak from my experience with women I know, almost everyone I know is religiously getting tested once a month. They're adamant about condom use. They take their sexual health very seriously, more than um, a non-sex worker would because it's their job to be, for lack of a better term, clean. So I think that stigma and that uh, false kind of narrative really plays into when they're talking about the uh, um, alleged COVID issues because it's like, oh, of course it's coming from a strip club. Look how dirty they are. Like, they don't care about their health. Like, they don't take other people's health seriously. 
Um, and you notice that even in the articles, you know, they're making a point to, if they're talking about the number five, they bring up brandies. I mean, they only really focus on the strip club. They're not mentioning any of the other possible places these infected people went within the X amount of days that they're potentially um, contagious for. So you're telling me these people literally didn't get in a car, like, I mean, didn't get in an Uber. They walked to the strip club just stayed there, coughed on everyone, and then went straight home and didn't go to gas station, didn't go to a grocery store, go for restaurants. And I think that's when people read articles. That's the bigger question is, like, why are we not mentioning anywhere else? You know, why are we focusing on just a strip club? Yeah, actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because we were having this conversation on the radio yesterday morning, and I kind of caught myself at one point and, and pondered, you know, are we having this conversation about COVID-19 outbreaks at show lounges because it is a problem, that it, that it is a real issue that needs to be discussed more so than what's happening at other types of establishments? Or is there sort of a novelty to the story? It's sort of uh, oddity, and that's why it's being discussed, something akin perhaps more to an availability heuristic than a real statistical problem. Oh, for sure. And I think, too, like, it also, the problem with once you do that, it's really like this kind of gateway into people like jumping on the bandwagon and giving their opinions and ridiculous accusations. Like I know reading the comments and hearing people talking about these articles that come out, you know, oh, we should close down strip clubs because it's women, it's female trafficking and sex trafficking. And, you know, these women are forced to be there. They're first forced to work. I mean, which is ridiculous. Again, yes, trafficking is horrible and it does happen in our world. And if that's something you're passionate about and you have the ability to, aid in the end of that like for sure I can I commend you and and put your efforts where it's needed but in the strip club where again I only speak from my experience as a woman I know it's not the case you know and just because you choose not to do a work that someone else does doesn't mean you should condemn them or try to take their job from them especially when a lot of us find joy in what we do for work we're proud of of how well we are at our job how good we are at jobs and and what we've achieved with it and, and the skills we've developed within the industry as well. You know, with that said, uh, I think it's an incredible accomplishment that you have two university degrees. I'm working towards just one, so (laughs) I think that's pretty impressive. And you've chosen to do uh, sex work primarily as a dancer. What is it about this line of work that that you enjoy? Why do you do this line of work? Well, I mean, obviously, you're going to get the the generic question, that comment of like the money and the, the freedom of schedule, right? Which is, I think, what a lot of women first go into it. But when you when you really start to kind of open that door and go into the industry, you realize how many false narratives there were and these preconceived notions notions just fall away and you're like, wow, these are a lot of people just owning who they are, owning their sexuality proudly and really taking advantage of the skills they have. You know, you hear these this idea of like stripping me a metric for failure in our society. You know, if I lose this job I'll be a stripper. If I fail this test, I'll be a stripper. And I think it, it does a disservice to uh, the women in the industry and men and how much skill it really takes. This is the one job I've had where I felt the most empowerment and the most ability to use my own skills, such as like people skills, communicative skills, um, how to read a room, money skills. You're really developing a business solely on what you have to offer, whether that be your looks, your personality, and or both. And that's quite an achievement in itself, I think. But then, too, like just the people I met in the industry are honestly amazing people. They're so genuine and so um, unapologetically themselves, and I think that's inspiring to be around. And then I also think just the reward of the human connection you make with other people. Sex work isn't all about sex, and you meet people in your 
day-to-day working where they really just want someone to sit and talk with them and they want that human connection. And that's so rewarding to know that you made someone's day better or um, you impacted someone in that way. Um, and that people really want to just like be around you and, and see you have something to offer the world like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, Danica, I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, thank you so much. Is there anything here that we didn't discuss that you think is important that, that we should mention? Uh, yeah. I, oh, to be honest, one thing is because of the limited capacity the clubs are working at right now, if you are someone that chooses to go to the club, obviously, like, don't go if you're feeling sick because it's not fair to the people that are, you know, going into work. They don't deserve to get sick because you came into their, their work. And if you're going to come to the club, uh, spend money at the club on the dancers because that's really how they make their money. A lot of dancers either are getting, like, just their stage money or they're, um, they're living off tips, right? So if you're going to come to the club and it's already at limited capacity, make sure you're tipping the girls and contributing to dances or contributing financially in some way to the workers and showing their appreciation that way. Again, stop marginalization and stop, you know, stigmatizing a group of people you know nothing about and really educate yourself on it. That is Danica Darling, an exotic dancer, sex work advocate, and host of the podcast 50 Plus a Tip, speaking with our Nikki Reitmeyer about the misconceptions of club reopenings and what's been going on. All right, you're looking for something to do this weekend. Have we got some news for you? Playland is reopening today. Let's get all the details on this. Joining us now is President and CEO Shelley Frost. Good morning, Shelley. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. I can't even begin to imagine the amount of work that you guys must have put into this. Well, it was a lot of work, but you know what? We are so excited to get the doors open today that every minute of it was worth it. Um, it just is a really, really exciting time at the PE and for our team to be able to start welcoming some guests back in a very health and healthy and safe way. Okay, so what is Playline going to look like? Yeah, so it's, you know, it's going to be a different experience. A few of the things that we're doing are you used to be able to buy a ticket and come anytime you wanted. Now you buy a ticket for a specific date and we're doing specific time slots so that we can better control capacity to make sure that we don't have too many people in the park at any given time and that everybody's got lots of space. Um, you know, with your paid admission, you'll get a really fun commemorative mask and masks are mandatory while you're in the ride queues. And while you are riding the rides, because that's where you're going to scream and laugh. And, oh, yeah. You know, we want to make sure that you got your mask on for that. Um, I, I saw that, actually. I think it was at Tokyo Disneyland where they were asking people to please scream on the inside. Don't scream <laughs> yes. out loud. And I thought, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I know. I was, like, I was thinking, how am I going to ride some of those rides with screaming on the inside? Uh, yeah, so, you know, um, lots of room for people. We have hand sanitizer on the way in the ride and way off the ride. Um, and it's a smaller zone to start with, so we can just have a bit of a controlled environment. And uh, we're just going to, you know, we're going to allow people to come back, have a great time. And by August 1st, uh, we expect to have more rides up and running. Okay, so what is the capacity level like compared to what a normal capacity would be? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, on a really busy day in Playland, uh, we would have had six to 8,000 people. Uh, we've got significantly less than that. We're planning for like 1,000 people over two time slots. So we're only looking at, you know, five to six to 700 people in the park at any given time, which, you know, when you think about it is no lineups. You can ride the rides over and over like again. It's a, it, I think it'll be a great experience for people. I know that actually sounds very appealing. No lineups, no nothing. Uh, what about the food? A lot of people go for the food as well. Right. So what's going to be open? What's not open? 
Yeah, and, you know, not everything is open just yet, but your favorites are going to be open. Triple O's is going to be open. We're going to have mini donuts. Uh, we will have, you know, our cotton candy stands and stuff open. So there will be some fun options for you. Um, and, again, by August 1st, we'll have some of the bigger attractions and more of our food and beverage open by then. Okay, so it's open today. What are the hours and over the next couple of weeks? Yeah, so uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be open on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. And you can purchase a time slot to come either in the morning from 10.30 to 2.30 or in the afternoon from 3.30 to 7.30. So you've got a four-hour window. And then we're going to take some time in between and go through and, you know, kind of re-clean or re-sanitize everything. Uh, so weekends right now. And then again, by August 1st, we'll have some of the bigger attractions like the wooden roller coaster and the beast in the atmosphere uh, up and running. And we'll have some extended hours like, you know, we're looking at Saturday nights uh, in Playland. You'll be able to come in the evening and, you know, have a, a Playland in the dark experience kind of thing. So extended hours in August. But for right now, it's Friday, Saturdays and Sundays. Okay. So what's the take up in like on the website? Like, are you getting, is it busy? Yeah, you bet. You know, it, it, we... It, we knew that, you know, there's going to be people who are really excited to get out with young families and, you know, find something to do again. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be people who are just not ready to do that. And that's totally fine. You know, it can be on people's own timeline, but mm-hmm. we do want to be able to be out there and, and bring some of our staff back, provide a healthy, safe environment for people to have fun. Um, and, you know, as we go and people see that it's, you know, safe and we're taking all the right steps, uh, they'll have more confidence and be able to come out and have some laughs with us. All right. I love it. Shelly, thank you. Thank you, Cindy. Shelly Frost, PE President and CEO, talking about the opening of Playland, which starts today, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, for the next couple of weeks. It's not going to be the complete Playland that you remember, but hey, they're trying here, right? So they deserve that support. But remember, if you want to go, book your ticket online, pick your times that you want to go, the day that you want to go. Capacity is way going to be reduced. So you're going to actually have a pretty quiet experience, no lineups or anything like that. So I think that'll be a lot of fun for a lot people there. So check that out online. In 2007, 22-year-old Christopher Mohan was returning to his apartment in a Vancouver suburb. Unbeknownst to him, an alleged drug dealer who lived in the building and his associates were the target of a turf war. Mohan and another innocent bystander, Ed Schellenberg, a repairman, were caught in the crossfire. That is Global News reporter Robin Gill talking about the story after gang member Jamie Bacon pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit murder yesterday in court, and all after a case that started back in 2007. Well, Eileen Mohan is the mother who has been seeking justice for the murder of her son, Christopher, the innocent bystander in the Surrey 6 massacre. She joins us now to talk more about these latest developments. Good morning, Eileen. Good morning. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm exhausted. I feel frustrated. And why frustrated? Oh, you know, we, um, you know, after when we won the appeal of this day because um, um, Jamie Bacon's uh, case for Series 6 was stayed in December and Crown went and we appealed and... uh, um we we won the appeal and and the trial and the trial was starting again and i was looking forward to my um you know to our my days in court and the charges at that time was the first degree murder charge and i thought that was uh, the appropriate charge for mr bacon and um and then a few weeks later, um, you know, um, into um, 
um, this month, um, I'm, you know, I was, uh, I heard that uh, we would be, everything's going, you know, smoothly and mm-hmm. we, we will be having our day in court. And then all of a sudden, you know, I get an information that um, Mr. Bacon is um, pleading guilty. And um, this week has been turning into what, supposed to be um you know a good day a good week in summer but um we're having to scramble to get ready to go to court and don't know what to expect so you were looking forward to your day in court and do you feel this takes away from that moment that you were waiting for of course it does, and it's you know, and not even the moment uh, we've waited for this day for thirteen years, you know, and uh, for us to for him to plead guilty after thirteen years, I I just did not think it was a genuine effort on his time on his part because I thought that um, you know now he had exhausted all his avenues. Right. Um, um, seeking how to, you know, discharge himself from the grips of uh, the court system and uh, to set himself free. So he knew only the only thing left in the books for him was to plead guilty and then, um, but with a bargain plea. Right. What would the court process have done for you, Eileen? What, what did you want to hear in the courtroom if that had happened? Um, whether it was a normal trial or the bargain plea. If the normal trial, like if the trial had gone through and you mm-hmm. said you were looking forward to being in the courtroom, why was that? What did you want to hear from that? You know, for 13 years, um, Mr. Ba- uh, Mr. Bacon, you know, has dodged the system. And, and it was, I, I thought, well, finally, the, the normal process was going to take someone responsible for the murder of my child and um, the destruction of his life and our lives, we were going to get a proper um, conviction, a proper uh, process in, in court, uh, as we should have. And, uh, and, you know, I was looking forward that, okay, now that he's going to have um, the the sentence that he actually deserved, and I realized that okay, he was in in court. I mean, uh, sorry, in prison for since two thousand and nine. So I kind of did my calculations, and you know, it would be around after all the time and a half or, mm-hmm. or two plus and all that, somewhere around you know fifteen years to twelve years. In prison, and I thought that was good enough for me. And um, you know, um, being a normal person, you don't want to be too um, too stringent in in the way you want to think about another person. But I thought that would have delivered um, justice, and and somehow right. it would, you know, um, be good enough for me. So you feel like by doing this, he is kind of escaping the justice system? Well, he, I mean, sort of a, a, not even escaping the justice system. He, he sat there and made a very calculated move, um, which his um, counterpart, uh, Michael Lee, did too, because Michael Lee was facing first-degree murder charge. And amongst all the trial, 
he cut a sweetheart deal and 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 got six years. Mm-hmm. And today he's a free man, and so he took um, he took a part of um, a paragraph out of Michael Lee's um, uh, sentence and uh, think, well, you know, this can apply to me too. So. Um, at the end, and he's in a corner now. He has no avenues to maneuver through the court system. So this was the only thing left for him to do. So in a couple of weeks, uh, you'll be able to go to court for the sentencing aspect. Are you going to speak there? And if so, have you thought about what you're going to say? You know, that's I'm, I'm, I'm you know I'm struggling to be kind in in the words that I want to use but you have to be kinder because we are you know we have to be, we have to be reasonable in our thoughts and and don't get become a monster like he does so I'm sitting down and I'm thinking what to write in my victim impact statement and um, Eileen a lot of people would be surprised to hear you say you're, you're trying to be kind <laughs> You know, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm very, I'm struggling in my efforts to say, you know, this man has never been kind to our society, has never been kind to um, the way that our taxpayers have spent millions of dollars in his trial and on his lawyers. But you know, as a as a human race, we have to. Look, set ourselves apart and, and think, you know, do we want to follow um, your own uh, way of life or do you want to become a monster like another person who wants you to work a walk on his footsteps? So I'm, I'm trying to be very guarded in my efforts in what I say and do. Well, I think you're off to a good start with what you just said to us right there. But Eileen, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. That is Eileen Mohan. She is the mother of Chris Mohan, who was one of the innocent bystanders shot and killed in the Surrey Six murders back in 2007. And as you heard, she is struggling a bit with that guilty plea by Jamie Bacon yesterday in court. And she will be speaking at the sentencing, which comes up later this month. And of course, we'll have more coverage of that for you. We are calling for the formation of a national task force to research drug policy reform. That is Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer. He was speaking yesterday, but in his capacity as the head of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. That's why what he had to say is generating so much discussion, so many headlines out there. He's talking about the decriminalization of simple illicit drug possession, drugs of all kinds. So what needs to happen to make this a reality, right? He's the police chief. They don't make the laws. They enforce the laws. And what levels of government are going to be involved? We wanted to talk about the next steps now in this discussion. Joining us is Caitlin Shane, staff lawyer at Pivot Legal Society. Uh, Caitlin, thank you very much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Were you surprised to hear that? I was a little surprised, yeah. it's um, It's been very challenging for police to admit the harms of this system and the way that that drug laws are impacting the overdose crisis. So I was a little surprised, but um, I think it's a positive development. Yeah, what do you think has changed? This is something that I know the Pivot Legal Society has talked about for a long time, and now it seems like you've got some health officials on board. Now you've got police chiefs on board. 
Yeah, it's certainly kind of the next step towards what we've been calling for for a long time, which is decriminalization. I think, frankly, um, people are kind of reckoning with reality that criminalization isn't working. Although we've known that for decades, uh, I think it's become more and more apparent um, with the, the rate of overdose deaths. And also we've had some really important um, movement from public health officials, from people who use drugs, from the movement overall, that has been successful in uh, really revealing the harms of that system. So what would this look like, do you think? I mean, it's got to be baby steps, right, to bring everybody on board. But what do you think the next steps need to be here? Well, for one thing, the CACP has recommended a task force. And that's a bit of a red flag to us because that could indicate you know, years more in terms of uh, the road to get to decriminalization. And and we think that the evidence is there. The calls are there. The death rate is so high, we can't afford more time. So we think it needs to be immediate. And there are a number of different levels of government that can and should be engaged. So what what our organization and, and over 160 allied organizations across Canada have recently called for is for the federal government to um, issue a proactive exemption that is nationwide um, that would prevent anyone in the country from being uh, charged with the offense of simple possession. That's something they could do uh, readily, easily. The Minister of Health would issue the exemption, and that would be it. And then that could be an interim step on the way to actively repealing the provision in the federal drug laws that deal with simple possession. What does simple possession mean? Simple possession is is just uh, kind of the legal language for possession of illicit drugs for one personal use. Um, So right now, police, uh, you know, arrest people who have small amounts of illicit drugs on them. That is drugs that are not issued to them by a prescription um, and they receive criminal charges. They can be incarcerated and it leads to a whole bunch of public health harms and public safety risks as well. Okay, so then by not arresting someone who has a small amount of drugs on them for personal use, what kind of a difference do you think that can make? Well, what we know is that criminalization of of, uh, simple possession drives drug use further underground. It leads to um, people being in incredibly precarious positions when they are using drugs. Um, It is disproportionately uh, used to target and incarcerate racialized communities. Um, It reduces access to harm reduction services. It perpetuates stigma. So when we remove the criminal risk and the fear of arrest from simple drug possession, you also begin to chip away at all of those really pervasive harms. So we feel that this is kind of the first step in in destigmatizing drug use and undoing some of the harm that that stigma has caused. So now when you have the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police saying that, yes, we believe this too, do you think this is enough to make it happen? I'm very hopeful, um, but I think it remains to be seen. We need to be incredibly vigilant over the next little while to make sure that this act is operationalized. So that's going to mean putting pressure on the federal government in the ways that I've kind of outlined, and then also pressure on the province, which uh, you know, in theory, can be a bit more nimble and flexible because it's a, it's a lower level of government. Um, you know, 
based on what we've heard from the province, they don't seem to want to admit that they have available avenues um, to address drug possession laws. They seem to be saying that this is a federal issue, that it's outside their jurisdiction. Um, But we disagree because there actually are a number of avenues available to the province. So given what we've seen with the opioid overdose pandemic, that problem that has not gotten any better in the last, you know, four years that we've had this public health crisis. Do you think that's one of the reasons why now we're saying, listen, we've tried everything else? I think that, yeah, this is kind of a a realization that something systemic needs to change, Um, that that what we've been doing hasn't been working, and now especially uh, in the midst of Two public health emergencies. We have the opioid crisis, and we also have COVID nineteen. Um, something's going to give. And so, are you hopeful that this could be soon? Now, like, what? Ha- what will you advocate for now? Now that this, the chiefs of police have said this, advocating at the federal level for the for the proactive exemption and, and formal amendment to the law, and then in terms of of the province, we'll be doing advocacy there too. So we're encouraging the province to apply for an exemption from the federal government. Um, we're encouraging the province to amend the legislation that does have jurisdiction over. So the province has jurisdiction over the Police Act. Um, and they can, you know, pass a regulation that would reroute services and resources and, and, and finances away from the enforcement of simple possession. And that's actually a recommendation that was made by Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, last year in her report, which encouraged decriminalization as a response to the opioid crisis. Now, at the time that that report was released, within about 24 or 48 hours of its release, you had the Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General saying, actually, we can't do that. It's not in our jurisdiction. And I'm hoping now, as we've seen, you know, health professionals and, and government respond so positively um, to the public health officer that they'll kind of think, well, maybe we should listen to her in the right. context of, of drug criminalization too. We'll see what happens. Caitlin, thank you for your time. Thanks so much. It's Caitlin Shane, the staff lawyer of drug policy at the Pivot Legal Society. Now, Pivot has been advocating for the decriminalization of simple illicit drug possession for years now. But as they have continued with that same message, more and more kind of officials in a higher capacity have started to agree with them. As Caitlin mentioned there, Dr. Bonnie Henry, when she first took on that job as BC Provincial Health Officer, must have been about a year or so ago, uh, this was one of the things that she talked about. I remember interviewing her then, and she talked about this particular issue. And then today, bigger step forward, when you heard the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police and the chief of that, Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer, uh, talking about the support that those police chiefs now have for the decriminalization of simple, illicit drug possession. So you'll definitely be hearing more about that. As the temporary impacts of the shutdown start to recede. Uh, I'm going to be watching closely how much longer lasting damage uh, is remaining. Okay, so that's Brendan Bernard. He's with Indeed Hiring Lab. He's an economist there. We spoke with him earlier in the week in anticipation of the June labor force survey. Now that arrived this morning. We wanted to break down those numbers there. Joining us now is Ken Peacock, chief economist and vice president at the Business Council of BC. Ken, thanks for being here. 
You're very welcome. Good morning, Simi. Well, how do you view these numbers? Good news? Bad news? Yeah, so context is everything here. I, I view them as good news, and, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, last month we saw, in just the, you know, the early stages of the reopening, we saw employment rise in BC after devastating losses uh, a couple months prior to that. And I was expecting maybe that 40000 increase the previous month to double, and, and we actually saw a tripling. So it exceeded my expectations. So in that sense, it's good news. Now, the context I'm talking about is we've still lost 400,000 jobs, um, and we just got back 118 and 43 the previous month. So we're still down a couple hundred thousand jobs. But, but I take this uh, as a promising sign that we're heading in the right direction. So what the areas that still haven't come back, what, what areas of concern are those? Well, there, there's still some hard-hit sectors. And, and the other thing I'll, I'll just note here on this labor force report is almost all of the jobs have been part-time in nature um, this month. So, mm-hmm. and, and this isn't surprising because of where the jobs were lost, uh, you know, retail and, and hospitality. And it's not at all surprising that companies are going to rehire on a part-time basis rather than jumping in full-time so if there is a little bit of a weakness it's that part-time segment Mm -hmm. but overall good news Uh, and still the the hard-hit industries the hospitality the retail um, the tourism sectors still hard hit but you are seeing uh, a return in employment in those sectors as well so what does that tell us about kind of the underlying factors of the economy then it seems to me that from what you're saying and the numbers that we've seen there is some strength down there it's just going to take a while to get back to it I think you're exactly right. It's going to take a while. My my concern now is we've seen a, a, a couple good months of employment recovery, which is to be expected as as we move into this reopening phase. But when we get into the sort of fall months and later in the year, and this, the the global recession is kind of weighing on the provincial economy, I'm expecting employment growth to, to slow down. I, I don't think we're going to see uh, a few more repeats of, of this month. So um, employment's going to move more slowly, regain more slowly as, as we move through the year. And I'm sort of originally was thinking, you know, if we got back the 200,000 jobs and we're kind of only down 200,000 by the end of the year, that wouldn't be a bad pay, uh, bad place. We're on pace to actually exceed that. So I'm, I, I'm hopeful in that sense, but I, I am still cautious. Um, the comments that you were playing at, at the outset about uh, the sort of slow recovery process, mm-hmm. I think that's going to start to play out in the, in the subsequent months. What, what can we say about consumer sentiment at this point, Ken? Ah, consumer sentiment, you know, it's it's very challenging. I, I almost uh, am, am evaluating that on just my personal experiences when I go out there because it's so hard to gauge, gauge just how people are. But I, I, I get a sense, I get this sense that there's this tension to me. People want to get back to normal life, but they're also concerned. There's also concern and, and fear out there. So you, you can kind of feel it when you're out in public. Some people yeah. are less concerned. Some people are more concerned. Uh, I just don't see... Uh, a return to normal. Uh, and I mean, if you go out in public, in retail outlets and restaurants, you, you can tell that the layout's just not the same and people's behaviors are somewhat different. So I think consumer sentiment is, is good and, and, and will be solid, but, but it's rattled and we are not just, yeah. we're not going to return to a normal. I do, feel like, I do feel like people do want to spend money. 
right? Like they they do want to buy things, whether it's online, they do want to buy food, whether it's going to a restaurant, maybe they don't feel fully comfortable there, but they still want to order takeout. Like, I feel like that part of the consumer sentiment is strong. I I, I agree. You know, and this is this is one of the great conundrums of this downturn. Usually in recessions, governments are kind of bending over backwards to support consumer spending. Uh, in extreme cases, you'll see actual, you know, transfer money, uh, of money just to kind of stoke and fuel consumer spending. In this downturn, uh, government is conflicted. They don't want people out on mass in, in retail outlets <laughs> out spending money. They want it, but they want it kind of in a controlled manner. So it's, so it's going to be very difficult to walk that line as we move forward. Okay, so then what are you looking for in next month's job numbers? Yeah, I am looking for uh, another positive print. Uh, I think we we could see uh, another solid gain. I don't expect a repeat of over 100,000 jobs. I think the reopening boost and and bump that we get from reopening has has largely occurred, and I expect that kind of dampening factor from the global economic backdrop being uh, weak starting to start to weigh on the BC economy. So, you know, employment's been hit by the shutdown. Now I think our job market's going to be hurt by the global weakness and the global recession while we're still getting um, more jobs from the reopening. So it's kind of gains offset with some losses is is what I think. So we can only do so much is what you're saying, right? Like the rest of the world has to come along with us. We are now, we are now, the, the, the global backdrop is now a very, very big picture. And, and when you think about international travel and restrictions there and whether or not, I mean, we have control, well, federally we have control over whether we're going to yeah. admit international travelers, but, but the global backdrop and the pandemic kind of dictates the pace at which that's going to happen. Right. Well, Ken, thank you so much for the analysis. You're very welcome. Thank you. Ken Peacock, Chief Economist and Vice President of the Business Council of BC, breaking down the June labor force survey that just arrived this morning. There is some good news in there for BC and for Canada, but again, we still are in pretty much a wait and see pattern over the next couple of months, too. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. In Ottawa, the scandal surrounding the Prime Minister seems to be growing bigger every day. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau now under fire for his family's relationship with the We Charity. This is the one that is run by the Kielberger brothers, Craig and Mark Kielberger. After a government contract was awarded to the company to help distribute $900 million for youth programs. So the government partnered with WE, this is how this whole thing got started, to distribute all of this money. At the time, it really raised eyebrows. This is about a week or so ago, maybe two weeks ago now. And there was a lot of questions about, wait a minute, how was this contract awarded? What is going on here? Here is now the bigger problem. Newly released information shows that both the Prime Minister's mother and brother were paid tens of thousands, in the case of his mother, a couple of hundred thousand dollars by the charity while he was prime minister. Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken has been following this story. For Trudeau, the Trudeaus, their association with these WE events, what do they get out of it? Well, it helps make the prime minister, you know, look like that hip uh, politician that can connect with young people. Uh, That seemed to be a good quid pro quo for him and didn't help the WE events at all, because Trudeau is a bit of a draw among young people. So, you know, look good for the we. But here's the thing that we learned yesterday about the connection between the Trudeaus. Margaret Trudeau earned about $250,000. That's a lot of money for for anybody. Earned about $250,000 in speaking fees at we events. 
and that was over a period of time, but includes the time when Trudeau was prime minister. His brother Alexander also several thousand dollars in speaking fees, also paid while the prime minister was, uh, while Justin Trudeau was the prime minister. Sophie, that's of course PM's wife, she got fourteen hundred dollars for an event in 2012. So that was before Trudeau was PM. Um, but uh, I, you know, Sophie has been still very active at We Events and. We're looking into what sort of travel assistance Sophie received from the WE organization when she went this spring to an event in London. And then this contract as well. Not only does it mention, you know, that, okay, I'll, I'll just give this contract to, to the WE folks. It was sole-sourced, so there was no competition. Cabinet apparently considered the deal, so it was put before Cabinet. You can't, even, even a prime minister in Canada cannot hand out a $900 million contract without um, a uh, Cabinet decision. So Cabinet considered it, um, and the Prime Minister did not recuse himself from the discussion, despite these ties his family has to it. The Prime Minister did not recuse himself from the discussion, did not apologize for that either when we asked him about that this week. And then uh, we got the deal. What does we get out of that? This $900 million goes to we for them to distribute to students. So they're taking in $900 million. They're supposed to hand out the $900 million to students. But we would have been paid about $20 million for their effort. This looked like a lifeline to we for it to save some staff because their buddy Justin Trudeau was going to give it a basically a $20 million contract. End of the thing, the deal became too hot to handle for uh, we certainly, but almost everyone involved. And we said it withdrew. Uh, the prime minister said it was a mutual decision, but right now we're back to the government trying to figure out how to deliver this program for students. Remember that? At the end of the day, we got 35 students kind of hoping for something here. Immense confusion right now. There's jobs on a federal government website that are being advertised that don't exist. Um, and we're really not sure when the bureaucrats are going to have this program up and running. All right, that's Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken summarizing for us what has been going on from Ottawa the last couple of days. I have to say, you know, the more you read about it, this thing just stinks to high heaven. And I am constantly astounded by the ways in which this prime minister manages to score on his own goal repeatedly with these self-inflicted ethical problems and mistakes, which should be very clear from a mile away. More to come on that as well. Well, this is one story that is not going away. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau just getting hammered by the opposition, by the media, by people everywhere after the revelation that We Charity paid his wife, his mother, and his brother for speaking engagements. And all of this comes after we learned that the Prime Minister himself stayed in the room when the decision was made to give We Charity a contract to distribute $900 million for youth programs. And he didn't recuse himself, despite the fact that his family has been benefiting from that relationship. Joining us now to talk more about this is Marika Walsh, a Global Mail reporter who has been covering this. Marika, thank you very much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Now let's go, start, go back to the beginning of this. How did this all start? So this all started actually back in April. I mean, it feels like a million years ago, but there was a torrent of news every day with the government announcing programs to try and respond to um, the COVID-19 economic crisis and to help out different demographic groups, in this case, students. Then in June, the government announced that We Charity would be the one administering this program, and that's when things really took off because of the Prime Minister's direct family connections and personal connections to the organization. Right, okay, and that kind of raised more questions, and then comes this kind of bombshell revelation that even though they kept saying they weren't paid, they were paid. 
Exactly. That came yesterday. So they announced the uh, contract for WE two weeks ago. Last week, they canceled the contract with WE. And actually, the biggest news on the controversies and the problems with it are coming since then. So as you mentioned, we know that the Prime Minister didn't recuse himself from the decision. And yesterday, we found out that his family has been paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for their participation with the charities events, which directly contradicts both what the Prime Minister's office told myself at the Globe and Mail, but also what the charity told CBC as well as Canada Land, which is an online news outlet. Right. So what did the Prime Minister say? So the Prime Minister hasn't said anything um, since since yesterday and since um, the the revelations. We got a very brief statement from his spokesperson acknowledging essentially that his family does work with charities and other organizations and saying the focus should be on helping youth right now. But they did not address, for example, why the Prime Minister's office gave us the wrong information a few days earlier. And they did not address at all whether they were in a conflict of interest or, or why this continues, given, given that um, there were these connections. Additionally, none of the ministers who are in cabinet have answered our questions about whether they knew about these financial payments to the Trudeau family when they were deliberating on awarding We Charity the contract. It's really important to point out that there is nothing wrong with working for a charity and doing charitable work, but when you are a public office holder, there are very clear rules in the Conflict of Interest Act around not putting yourself in a conflict of interest, not being perceived to benefit people you know, and recusing yourself to avoid having a conflict. And those are the questions that are now being investigated. Right. And what about the we charity aspect of this? Because they're, oh, accounting regularities. Oh, yeah, we paid from that shouldn't have happened. This should have happened. It seems like there's a lot of questions there, too. There certainly are uh, a lot of questions on both sides. I think I've already sent three different emails with questions to the Prime Minister's office today. So there there certainly are questions for We Charity. For example, we saw many people um, take to social media yesterday to say that when they asked for uh, payments for their participation in events, the charity said that as a charity, we don't pay for speakers. So that would be one of the questions that we will really have to contend with because presumably once the pandemic sort of wind down, they're going to want to continue their events. And so they need to address those with their stakeholders and with the media. But from my perspective as a political reporter in Ottawa, I'm really focused on the government accountability. Okay. Is there any indication that we might hear something from the Prime Minister or his office about this? The questions are out. I guess we'll find out. There's no um, media availability at press conference with the Prime Minister today, and we only get his itineraries a day in advance. So, so far, we don't know when he will next speak publicly and have the opportunity for questions. But certainly, we know that there will be much more information coming out because there are now committee investigations going through July and likely into August with the Finance Committee and the Government Operations Committee, as well as the expected release of many documents related to this sometime in August. Plus, of course, there's the ethics investigation. And today, the Conservatives have called for a police investigation into um, the We Charity contract. They say today in Ottawa, they said that um, the revelations about the financial payments to the Trudeau family are what tips this into the need, into the police realm and the need for a criminal investigation. All right, Marika, good luck with trying to get some answers. Thanks for joining us. (laughs)
Thank you. That is Marika Walsh, Global Mail political reporter who has been covering this story of this tangled web of We Charity, the prime minister, his wife, his mother, his brother, who were paid to speak at We Charity events, even though the charity tells everybody else apparently that they don't pay to come and speak at their events. And then prime minister did not recuse himself, did not leave the room when cabinet was discussing the possibility of giving We Charity a contract to distribute $900 million for youth programs. So, I, for one, really want to hear more about this story. So we'll have, of course, for you any developments on that. So as you've been hearing in the news and on the show this weekend, we know that Playland is reopening. You need to make reservations in advance. And because Playland is a facility and not an event, more than 50 people will be allowed. Contact information, um, limitations on who can be where at, at a certain time. Dr. Henry says the amusement park has been working closely with Vancouver Coastal Health and WorkSafe BC to ensure that only small groups of people enter. Okay, so that's a report there from Global, but there's a very interesting distinction of words in there. Because Playland is a facility and not an event, it is allowed to open with pretend like a couple hundred people. They're definitely limiting it to less than a thousand per day, but hundreds of people we're talking about here. Meanwhile, event companies have been very outspoken about their desire to start hosting larger events safely, but so far they haven't been allowed to do so. Brett Turner joins us now, owner of Cocktails and Canapes. Brett, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This must be very frustrating. It is a very frustrating for us. Uh, that's a great word uh, to use. Okay, so what? So you want to have events, but you can't. You're not allowed to. That's correct. Yeah, we've been going back and forth with uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry on this, and you know the way that we feel is that we're professional event producers. Uh, you know, we set up and plan and coordinate events on the daily uh, as professionals, um, but we've been grouped into. Uh, groups of families that are getting together, uh, you know, for a barbecue or 20, 30 people. And there was a, a, an instance in the valley where that happened. And, you know, all 20 family members uh, were affected by COVID-19. But, you know, we're professional event producers. Uh, th- this is what we do. And, you know, we're very able to have an event over 50 people. Are you able to do it, do you think, in the way that the health officials would like you to, where you know everybody, where you can contact trace everybody, and you can keep some distancing? Absolutely. So we uh, we also enjoy road catering in the Okanagan, and I'm, I'm actually in the Okanagan right now, and we did our first dinner last night. We did 40 people uh, at a winery, and we could have sat 80 people at that winery, but we're limited to 40 um, and then including our staff, our 10 staff makes 50. And so we could have sat 80 and people buy tickets online to the dinner that we uh, created. And so they enter all their information online, who they are, their number, their address, and then they arrive in groups and we have somebody meet them and we take them to their tables and it went smoothly and perfectly. And it, it, the distancing is far greater than what you see right now in some coffee shops, restaurants, and facilities like the PME where they've been determined right. as facilities instead. So they're allowed to have hundreds of people. So Brett, then are you continuing to lobby health officials? Are you hopeful this might change anytime soon? I am continuing. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry responded saying that we will absolutely not be allowed to have more than 50 until there's a vaccine. Uh, which was really upsetting. That came last week. Um, and it's very upsetting because it's decimating our industry. And we're an industry of 
of event professionals just sitting here watching yeah. uh, the, the fire, so to speak. And it, it does, you know, it does hurt when you see that there's, you know, nightclubs open and the PNE and these things that are designated as facilities with hundreds of people in a way tighter space than we could do in a field or uh, in a large venue. You know what, Brett, you bring up some good points. I think we'll talk more about this next week, but thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's Brett Turner, owner of Cocktails and Canapes. They want to be able to have events. They think they can do it just as safely as facilities can. It is a good topic. We will talk more about that if you want to weigh in. Simi at cknw.com.